Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Todd Smith, thank you for joining us on I Love Data Centers. Good morning. Glad to be here. So my friend, it has been all of a couple hours since I last spoke with you. For those who are are listening here and don't know Todd Smith, he is a partner here at Open Spectrum. So we're we're going on a little riff here where we're not interviewing outside consultants and experts in the space. We're actually digging internally, but we thought it would be a good time to make some introductions to the broader team that we have of data center experts who also love data centers. So the conversation we're going to have today, my friend, is going to be also around your background and your history and how you got into data centers, which I think is is a fascinating story that a lot of people need to hear. But we're also going to touch upon the evolution of, of what we do day in and day out. Um, and we may dabble into some of the conversations we were just having recently about people being microchipped and <laughs> where that is leading uh, the industry as well. But um, without further ado, my friend... Can you give give our audience here just a little flavor as to where you sit today, you know, physically where you're at today and um, kind of where where you came from growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I, I sit in um, in the area where I was born and raised, which is Houston, Texas, um, in uh, Sugarland uh, specifically, which is southwest side of the metro area. And um, really, my background has... Uh, you know, sometimes I say I'd rather, rather be lucky than good. You know, I, I got into this world um, right at 10 years ago, uh, started uh, my anything related to technology at, uh, at Cyrus One uh, when the company was still relatively small and young in, in 2007. And it was an interesting story. You know, I'd been working at an um, international corporate uh, travel security firm uh, and got some cold calls from uh, a salesperson um, by the name of Caroline Brelsford, who, who's still at Cyrus One, back in 2002. And it was really interesting because it was after 9-11, and uh, they had just opened doors uh, on their first facility and were really just calling anybody in town. And the reason to call me was, you know, I was working at a security company, and companies are going to want to use data centers uh, because of security. That's really what I was being told. Got invited to come for a tour, um, basically toured a, uh, more or less a, a, a warehouse uh, on the Southwest Freeway in, uh, in, in Houston, and uh, was 
seemingly futuristic. Uh, they had just was opened, that, so there wasn't. Todd, was that the first data center you ever toured through? That's the first data center I've ever toured through. I did at that time. I knew nothing about data centers whatsoever. I mean, less than your average person, right? So, I mean, I'm I'm touring through it. There's there's really no IT hardware in it. Uh, very limited because they just opened, and I, it, it was a positive experience. Um, you know, I could I could feel and hear the story. Fast forward several years later, and I started looking at opportunities out in the market, and was at a point in my career where you know I was very open to change and and uh, really wanted something exciting and, and it really enjoyed being in the field I've been in. And uh, it just worked out. I, I felt a great vibe uh, at Cyrus One, a real um, uh, excitement that, that was there that, that permeated through the, uh, the executives that were inter- interviewing me. And, and I took the leap and I, I jumped right in and, and was drinking through a fire hose uh, trying to understand what the heck I'd gotten involved in. So before we dig too much into the... Uh the experience that you had at Cyrus One, when you were growing up, did your did your parents kind of involve you with with technology, or how how did you first get involved with tech? Because the you know you eventually went to work for that security firm, which I think is also yes. a, some stories that I'd love to dig out of you here that I think our our audience would appreciate hearing. But how did how did you even get interested in tech? Well, that's that's I think probably a bit unique in the story is that, you know, I, I I'd admit that even to this day, I've been sort of a technology laggard, right? It's, it's uh, never been anything that I've, I've dove into. It's, it's really something that, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a, a late adopter, but, um, you know, I'm more, more the type that'll get, um, you know, get the, get the technology, you know, after it's pretty, pretty gotten to be mainstream which is a little bit different in our industry. Most people are a little more uh, leading into technology. The reason that I uh, got the jump and got into the data center industry was really more to do with um, my hunger to uh, get into something uh, at a relatively uh, early stage uh, that was a, you know, a, a new development, right? And, you know, look, uh, technology, there's nothing better than, than that. I mean, a lot of you know, most of the other industries people get into are well understood and, you know, they may have expertise in certain areas, but, um, you know, the beautiful thing about technology is the pace that it changes by its nature and the acceleration that I've seen since I got involved in it. So it was, it was really a bit of an oddball uh, hire, really, for me even to go to work there. Um, everyone else around me and, and maybe to this day is had some form of technology background. I had none. Um, and, you know, I had, it took some adjustment for me to, to, to get up to speed pretty quick. Where, where did you go to school? Where'd you go to university? Texas Christian University, Fort Worth, Texas, um, is where I went to, went to school. Studied, um, you know, general business and, and Spanish language studies. Gotcha. And then through a couple happenstance in, in your life, as you're saying, you'd rather be lucky than good, uh, you got to work for the the security company, which I think is is pretty fascinating. Can you explain a little bit about what that experience was? Yeah, I mean, it was really a similar experience. Um, you know, I, I very early in my career um, interviewed at this uh, security firm, didn't know much about it, and uh, it was just really um, 
interesting and and every day was different uh, i can say i was there for right at six years maybe a little more than six years it the, the firm itself was a, a subsidiary of a larger private company that did it was the the second largest uh handler of private aviation uh travel in the world and uh, this company came out uh, that i started with had actually evolved um because of the fall of the the Soviet Union and the opening of that of the whole uh, Soviet Union, um, that company, the the aviation company, saw a need to have security at the forefront of what it was doing, and so it it, it brought on a uh, a former Israeli Shimbet, uh, which is the equivalent of the U.S. FBI, and uh, he developed the company with a real focus on private aviation, private aviation, and uh, that expanded further into corporate security. And uh, so when I got there, it was just, you know, I I was just a, a young guy starting his career and, and uh, they liked me enough to hire me. And, and I, I spent uh, time there both in, in, in sales and started to run more from a business perspective. A lot of the operational side of the house it was just a really exciting time. I started there in June of 2001. Uh, obviously, just a few months later, a major uh, aviation uh, security incident happened there with, with 9-11, and, and uh, the company just exploded from there uh, in terms of uh, the overall business and needs. What's, what's one of the, uh, I don't know if you can tell any of the stories from your days working at that company or if the NDAs have expired, but you know, what's, what's one of the most memorable experiences you had while, while you were working there? Well, I, I'll give you context on it. Uh, our entire business and there's some parallels to what we do here in the in the uh, data center world. Um, but our entire business was founded on proactive security, which was to be knowledgeable about the environments you were going into, and then to take the proper actions um, and uh, precautions to secure yourself. Um, and on a day-to-day basis, that's what we did. I mean, we provided intelligence services and ground-based services as needed to our clients. Um, and I can tell you during the entire time I was there, having oversight into operations across the board, uh, there were zero uh, customer impacting incidents in terms of you know, bodily harm or, or anything of that nature. What I will tell you to get into some of the stories is, and frankly, where I made most of, of, of my income was on clients that weren't being proactive and got themselves into trouble. Um, those would be uh, piracy operations. Uh, we had a, uh, uh, a drilling company that was attacked uh, with it not being secured by us, was attacked uh, in the Strait of Malacca, which is uh, there in between, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, that little strait. And uh, we scrambled the team to uh, respond to that and, and get them back into uh, where they were going, which was Bangladesh. So, I mean, uh, the air evacuations out of West Africa had involvement in those. Um, responding to uh, assaults in uh, Brazil and providing security there. Um, very interesting situation, providing services for a major insurance company in Mexico to, uh, to more or less uh, make plans to evade uh, scrutiny <laughs> from, from a number of interesting situations down there. Um, so it just, I could go on and on. It was, it was definitely a global operation. Um, maybe the most unique was uh, the only one that we really got involved in uh, on U.S. soil of any major merit was uh, during Hurricane Ike. And we sent teams, uh, fully equipped teams, into New Orleans uh, to secure uh, members of the Houston Chronicle, which is, which is owned by the Hearst Corporation. 
And um, but just in a really exciting time. Every every day was different. Um, frankly, it was uh, not an easy decision to leave that company, but uh, but it was the right one, and it's worked out very well. So you made the move then into the data center industry, working with Cyrus One. Can you give our audience a idea of what it was like? to work at a company that was kind of growing at the clip that, that Cyrus One was growing at at the time and, and what the roles and responsibilities you had while you were there? It was a very transitional period when I got Cyrus One, uh, and it was a little bit daunting, I would say, at least for the first 60 days. You know, when I got there, um, I think it was just a couple months prior, Abri Partners had, had acquired Cyrus One from the original owners, our investors. You know, it was was really a divestiture right at that point. Cyrus One pivoting to focus just on uh, multi-tenant co-location and data center facilities. Prior to that, the business had largely been built off of IT managed services of of all types. You know, your pretty typical, you know, monitoring and and uh, you know all aspects of you know that more or less SMB managed services um, is what they were building it on. So there was a lot of turmoil with the company when I got there, but the decision was was made. Uh, so you know the the direction was clear, well, leadership was clear, and my mission was clear, which was my my initial role there was in, in sales business development, and, and it was go convince people to stop having their production environments in their own on-premise data centers. That was the 100% mission. Uh, we would do small companies, but frankly, the bigger, the better. And the company had uh, aimed its sites, particularly at large uh, energy companies that had production sites in, in the um, in the Houston area. It was really just a Houston-based company at the time. We had some some sites in Dallas, uh, 2323 Bryan, uh, but you know it was more that was pretty ancillary to the business. Um, so it was very Houston-focused. Uh, at that time, there really wasn't much of any competition. Uh, Verizon had a, a site uh, that was fairly substantial. Uh, Digital Realty had its campus um, in the north side of town. Uh, but there, there wasn't a lot of focus on what we were doing. And it really made it a, uh, a conversation about the future and total cost of ownership and you know, turning these assets over to a company that was dead focused on it. And we were very successful in uh, in the Houston market, and it expanded us into uh, Dallas, then Austin. And, you know, my roles during that time, I, I really embraced uh, building the channel. So I, I kind of did that as part of my uh, day-to-day sales and convinced the company that, you know, really we could start funneling a lot of our SMB through um, you know, all sorts of different managed service providers. And I had to convince them we were out of that business. And that, that was a, not, a, not an easy sell, but convince them we weren't in that business. We would, we would, we would send them business and leads to um, uh, really work within our ecosystem. And uh, over time, that became successful. And I would say, oh, 20%, uh, 25% of the companies that I brought to the portfolio were IT service providers of, uh, of various types and uh, was able to build that initial channel uh, during those first few years. And you did more than just direct sales uh, within Cyrus One. You started eventually migrating internally within the organization, um, helping with some operational systems and process. What what was that experience like? Well, yeah, that 
happened uh, after the first few years, we we sold uh, the business to Cincinnati Bell, and so then we became a wholly owned subsidiary of a public company, and things changed uh, quite a bit there. It wasn't your normal acquisition, though. It was almost as if, in our business, we were the acquiring company. Um, it was certainly directed by Cincinnati Bell leadership that, that came in uh, to work with us, but their direction was, to me, brilliant um, because it, it, it wasn't the Cincinnati Bell eyes what we were doing. Uh, they bought us because, you know, we had just become a fast-growing rocket ship in Texas, and, and uh, they already had a pretty good dominance with their data center managed service firm, uh, CBTS, in, in the Ohio area and a little bit into Chicago. And so we actually, um, after a little bit of, of wrestling, uh, were directed to take over those assets and put the Cyrus One brand on them and to get the direction of the business wholly focused on data center facilities. And that's what we did. Um, there, was, there was a bit more connect- connectivity focus, which, which was sound. Um, I thought it made sense, but there was a divestiture and, and a push out of all of CBTS's managed services. So what ended up happening is, our portfolio expanded pretty dramatically, and we were a small company in terms of headcount. I think CBTS, I mean, they had hundreds of employees. I think we had 70 at the time when we had uh, been acquired. So we, in my view, had outkicked the operations pretty pretty far, and there was a great need to um, build processes and teams that aligned with what we had been selling, which was not just world-class facilities, but world-class service. So I, I took it on myself and, and really um, raised my hand to talk to leadership about a position to help drive the company in a way that was very hands-on, very customer-friendly, very focused on the customer. And so I, they, they accepted my uh, my request for that position. And uh, what it became was a position called the Director of Customer Relations. What it was day-to-day, first off, was me building centralized customer service, you know, frontline teams that would interface and open tickets and port customers, uh, account management, which was, you know, your your folks that would do the quarterly business reviews and, and you know, try to maintain health and growth of an account, and, uh, and also the contract renewals uh, department. So it, it had a, you know, a 360 focus of that customer experience. And that was my job, you know, for the last couple of years that I was at Cyrus One. And uh, it was a uh, major task. And, and uh, frankly, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was on, you know, many, uh, you know, I had to approve change controls. Um, I was uh, directing emergency uh, action calls. Um, uh, for any um, in, anything that was needing to be communicated uh, in terms of you know irregular you know going to utility uh, going off utility power things like that communicating that to customers um, you know leading any issues uh, around any of the mechanical or cooling uh, or mechanical and power systems within the facilities so it was it was a major job and and uh, you know frankly as we moved and went public uh, as, as a standalone company that was uh, December of 2016, you know, we, we really, uh, that I really was in a, in a position to understand how this business worked, um, you know, really from that 360 perspective from the inside and uh, left shortly after uh, making the decision that there was huge opportunity in uh, using my experiences to, um, to help the market uh, as a whole and was excited about that. 
So you spent a couple of years building out Kaimisha Global and working with end user customers upon leaving Cyrus One and had a lot of fun projects that you were working on that we don't have to get into all of them. But I guess one of the fun stories is how you and I met. Do you, do you remember how you and I first started talking? Yeah. I mean, Kevin, Kevin Knight, um, who works with us out of Chicago, um, he and I were in Dallas working on some things and, you know, he said, Hey, we, we need to stop by. You need to meet, uh, Sean. He's doing a training there at the, uh, the Infomart. And it was, it was there at the Cologic's presence within the Infomart. And I remember going in and it was one of the open training sessions. Um, and, just remember, uh, after a short period of time, telling Kevin on a break, like, man, this this guy's one of us, you know. I mean, and and that, you know, to this day, especially a few years ago, I mean, that's that's a rare band, right? Because there's just, you know, as as we can get into, there's not that many of us out in the open uh, neutral market that have had our type of experiences. Uh, you know, Kevin, of course, um, long career with with you know Equinix Digital, um, so. Uh, it just just wasn't that many of us, and and remember, you know, knowing right off the bat that yeah, this is somebody that we can be working with for sure. All right. So with with your credibility and your background now on the table, uh, we can get into some of the more interesting conversations. I think, which would be the type of evolution that I know you and I have both seen in the marketplace, specifically over the last couple of years. But one of the questions I wanted to throw at you in in hear your response is, you know, how have you specifically seen the buying process for services evolve from when, you know, you and I were selling data center co-location, network connectivity related services back in mid late 2000s to, to now here we are in 2017, which is mind boggling for me to even fathom. But um, how have you seen this market evolve over the last decade or so? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll jump back to 2007, and I remember some of my first meetings. You know, once I kind of got somewhat comfortable and and went out and was you know trying to advocate for our services, uh, I would get into um, some interesting conversations with more of that kind of mid management IT level, and uh, it, it it confused me greatly uh, in the beginning uh, because I would would basically have people uh, that were running internal data centers try to tell me that you couldn't run those data centers offsite. It wouldn't work. And really, that confused me. And the arguments they were giving was latency. It was network. It was, uh, it's not going to work. We're going to have terrible performance if, if it doesn't live right in this building and we can we can be on a local area network with the data center. Um, I don't know how much of that, frankly, was sincere when I look back, I, maybe some of it, but um, what I started to understand very quickly at that time was, you know, the term that we use, server huggers. And there was a lot of fear. I mean, people didn't want those data centers to leave. Um, one thing that shook me and gave me confidence that a lot of it was not legitimate was I, I actually had uh, a good-sized energy company uh, tell me that it was the data center manager, and they were moving from one headquarter to another and planned to build across the street, really, from the facility that I was was promoting, they said, you know, yeah, we're we're building a data center in it. And I said, whoa, why don't you consider ours? And that story ended by that guy saying, our CFO might like to hear this, and he never will, because I'm not going to let him. And it it really blew me away that somebody would say that, uh, but it it then got my antennas up to make sure that this was truly a uh, a service that could be transformative. And and that's what ended up happening. 
So as as 07 turned into 08, 09, 10, um, and there were waves of companies uh, for various reasons uh, coming into the portfolio I was promoting, you know, it really emboldened me. And, and I started to see, you know, the evolution of of the mindset change. And it, and it was largely being supported by that one of those first concerns, which was uh, it's not going to work. It, it, the connectivity won't work. Well, you know, once the pricing was getting more, and of course, it's much more reasonable today, but as the economics started working, and uh, a lot of what we did to be successful at that time was to get down to economics and to elevate the conversation to the sea level. And, and frankly, there were policies at Cyrus One that you could not um, you couldn't give proposals to people that weren't decision makers, and then and that did make sense. Uh, you know, I believed in that after I'd seen dig, some of the dig into uh, that because in in our, in our trainings, as you well know, that's one of the key things that we we try to stress. But yeah. I want you to dig into the mindset of that, and also one one you know touch on one of the other policies that I know Cyrus One had. I don't know if they still do, but I, I greatly appreciated where no client was allowed to uh, begin to migrate any infrastructure into the facilities without actually delivering the equivalent of like the bill of materials that was going to be coming into the data center. So you know, walk through walk through all of that. So the mindset was was really clear at and you know I. I believe it to this day in in many regards that when you're talking about the data center platform, particularly the production platform, uh, which is you know where the focus and the true spending lies in most cases, it's a it's a business decision. It is not a technical decision. There there's technical needs around that, but it is an absolute financial business performance decision. And so it it gets made really across the board. I mean, to this day, it's getting made by CFOs, CIOs, the C-suite in general. I mean, it's often a board decision. So um, that that made total sense because it was really the mindset was why would you give proposals for your services in essence to your competition in many cases, which is what internal IT, at least at that time and you know, arguably to this day, saw these type of quote-unquote outsourcing services where you're no longer managing and running the data center platform and portfolio. So it was logic. It was just pure logic. And when you talk about bill of materials and understanding the environment, is, you know, that it was really more all about we got to be talking to the right people, getting the right information, and uh, making sure that that experience coming into the portfolio was positive and smooth as possible. A lot of focus on implementations. And, uh, you know, that that in turn created that you know, smooth transition and where people would advocate that, you know, well, yeah, why would you continue to build and operate data center facilities? And, and I'll tell you one thing I always thought it was weird, and to this day I do, is people will talk about having their facility on site. Half the time it's in a leased building. They don't even own the building. So they're, they're in essence putting capital into an asset they don't even own. And that, that argument only holds weight when you're talking to somebody who is, is looking at it from business perspective. And uh, that was really that mindset. And you let's let's repeat that again because that is a fundamental uh, component here that most people overlook, even the IT directors. And I'll I'll do my best to reiterate it. Is when you're talking about having an in-house data center and you're investing in your in-house data center, more often than not, the corporate enterprise customer is leasing 
the space from a landlord of sorts, and they're investing in the capital infrastructure to support their in-house data center, which, you know, walk, walk, keep walking through that paradigm. Well, yeah. So the issue is, you know, and, and one of the advantages of actually not having it in that lease building is that you are anchoring yourself to that location. And it would be very, you know, it could be very difficult for you to leave the location if you wanted to relocate your headquarters, um, which people, as their businesses grow and thrive, that is pretty common. Um, you know, and then, you know, you, you basically have now capital that uh, you've sunk that, you know, is uh, you know, and some of it may not be able to be salvaged out of there, and it just depends on the uh, your ability to even monetarily uh, uh, make any sense of that. Um, it, it's it's you know you're you're not really making an improvement that you can benefit from uh, from an asset that you own, right? So it's it's very much a that's that's very much a CFO conversation, a uh, business conversation. Now d- dig through the. You know, why would Cyrus One make it a policy to have their customers provide the bill of materials and rack layouts before they could install in the building? Well, it made sense to, to understand, number one, the scope, um, and it also made sense around implementations and, and, you know, kind of day one operations so that, you know, we don't, we don't basically have a deal, um, you know, that, that is, is, you know, misscoped. Now, we can get into some of that, which you know, the evolution of pricing models. Um, you know, when I first started at Cyrus One, it was pretty much an industry standard that it was a, you know, uh, by the cabinet or the square foot um, price plus, you know, by the circuit, by the power whip price. And to do that type of pricing, I mean, yeah, you've got to have precise by the rack information to, uh, to even deliver um uh, you know, on a contract. It wasn't long after I was there that that did start shifting to more peak load power uh, type of uh, space power all-in pricing, but uh, was still very common, uh, you know, in we saw it with competition across the board that, you know, in 2007 in the Texas market, most pricing was delivered by the rack or square foot plus power circuits until you got to the, the wholesale uh, providers, which, you know, we weren't at that time competing in that space. All right. So the conversation on hand about the evolution of the marketplace from, you know, mid 2000s to here we are in 2017, what is that, that fundamental, like what are the one or two primary shifts that you, that you can pinpoint and say things are different now because? Well, Things are different now, especially in markets that have matured in the data center facility space. We'll, we'll stay on that topic for, for the moment, the physical facilities. Uh, you've had just larger scale investment coming in. You know, the success breeded more investment, which has bred more scale, which has bred more competition. Um, and it's, it's really gotten to where, you know, things are being done, um, from my perspective, in the data center market with uh, most of the name providers now, they're doing things much better than they used to do them. The facilities are better, um, the infrastructure and the change management operations are better. Um, The price that they're paying to build those facilities is substantially less because of their cost of capital and the focus they've put on um, building in, in a more, you know, modular planned out fashion, building with more scale, 
focus on efficiency has really driven down expenses on an incremental basis. Um, I could remember, you know, that becoming a major focus around 2010, where I was sitting, um, you know, really trying to drive those cooling costs down dramatically and, and uh, knowing that that could increase the bottom line or ability to lower price uh, in many regards, uh, depending on the, on the structure. So those those things have gotten now to where you have a mature product at a at a lower cost and a lot more competition in the market. Um, so you know that's where we've seen much lower pricing, especially in highly competitive markets. In the in the providers can can uh, can sustain that largely because of of the advantages and, and efficiencies that I was talking about. I'd say the other change has been the next wave, I guess, of infrastructure outsourcing that's. Um, you know, quote unquote, the cloud market uh, in all its various forms uh, has has really started to do a real dance with. Uh, I mean, aggressively. I, I was talking about it, and and you know, was in the room when we started coining the phrases uh, at Cyrus One, "Sky for the Cloud," right? And uh, really thinking into the future that the future of these facilities is going to be kind of like a first class mall, right? Where you know, you're you're coming there to maybe go buy jewelry or or shirts, and you end up eating in the food court, and uh, you know you you end up buying going to three or four other stores, and and it all feeds on itself. It's it's a more or less a marketplace, and um, I'd say the next you know real buzzwords that you hear now with these providers is interconnection, cloud connectivity. You know this this has come to light. It's it's become mainstream what we were envisioning several years ago. Um, and that's, uh, that's pretty cool to see with all the new people. I mean, we see it through the trainings that we do and just the conversations that we have and the tours that we go on. There's a lot of new players coming into the marketplace, which means there's a lot of new people being hired to work at these new providers. What, what is some advice that you might give some of the new folks that are, are coming into the data center marketplace? You know, the advice I'd give is, is. You know, and I saw this uh, when I when I was first starting out. People that had you know lots of telecommunication or or hardware IT experience. It's it's you really you really need to be thinking about it um, from a business perspective. And you know sometimes we get so many of us can get so hemmed up in the technology and you know, uh, the, the, the bells and whistles or the, you know, which, which one has this redundancy or that redundancy. These things are important, but they're only important if they matter to what is the only thing that's important is how does that application serve the business? If you're not having a conversation about how does this data center platform, which is, you know, really just a foundation, how does that platform support the business, the internal or external users? Because if you're having that techie conversation, you're going to be talking to techie people. And we've already gone into um, that may not be the right people to be talking to your solutions about in many cases. They're, uh, they're, they're in, in the process, but they're not the ones that are really thinking about how the business uses that platform. What should this platform be in their personal uh, their personal needs or personal futures may not be tied to that new platform very well. So think business, have a business conversation, understand the business, only get into the weeds when it's absolutely necessary in a nuts and bolts tactical conversation. Keep your mind on the business. And that, that, if you do that, 
everything else will 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 pivot uh, pivot around that positively in most cases. All right, that's that's all great advice that I hope those who are listening and, and new to the industry can really start to noodle on uh, and start thinking through that it's it's understanding the nuts and bolts of the infrastructure within the facility is absolutely essential, but understanding the business drivers and how the business, what applications the business is, is leveraging to drive revenue, to support the day-to-day operations, where, where those, op- those applications sit, where they should be sitting, you know, to Todd's point, that's that's the conversation that needs to be had, uh, and it's not necessarily the conversation that needs to be had with the director of IT. It's ideally a conversation you could have with the executives because when they start to understand the criticality of their infrastructure, uh, that's when some light bulbs start to go off. Uh, you know, tying the whole conversation that we just had in together. You know, you're investing into a leased facility that you don't own that is not purposely built and designed to support production data center infrastructure, uh, and you're paying more than you could be paying to be inside of a facility that is designed only for this infrastructure, that's that's an interesting conversation that starts to get a lot of light bulbs to go off. So related to that, Todd, I know you and I both, when we're speaking with, with our enterprise customers, we try to have conversations around downtime around cost of downtime um, and that's something that you and I have spent God knows how many hours going back and forth lamenting about but maybe we could speak to that because I think those those listening might be able to gain some insight around the conversations around the criticality of understanding the cost of downtime you know I could probably go on for an hour speaking to how I've seen that conversation evolve over the last couple of years but what's what's your insight into that conversation well we'll go back into the past my, my personal past, and I, I had to kind of learn to train my mind not to assume that everyone can't afford downtime. I mean, that, that's, uh, I think, a false assumption a lot of us uh, make from time to time or have made or people make in this industry is that, you know, you got to have all this redundancy. Um, it, it, it goes back to what is the business purpose and how does this data center platform affect the business. And if you're having a conversation with somebody whose job it is, for example, to run that asset, it's got to be up 100% of the time. And if you dig into that, the reason is because then it's a very bad day for them and they're getting yelled at and people are upset uh, because things aren't working. But you've got to dig much, much deeper in that. you got to have business conversations that are many times multi-layered um, you know, within the organization to try to help them understand what they really need. And, and, it, and it sometimes could be application-specific. Uh, it is application-specific, but sometimes it become, become to where you can segregate the applications and some parts of the business may need uh, a certain data center platform and some, you know, may need a completely different one. And I, I think that's evolving a lot into what we're talking about in the term of hybrid IT. You know, that's, in essence, an, an evolution of how can we match these various platforms to meet the needs of these applications. And it is about the application. It is about how that serves the business. I'll give you just a, an example. I remember a, uh, a, a retail business, uh, sporting good retail business, where you know, they had their own data center, nothing, nothing to write home about, but uh, was, was decent and had capacity. And they, they were thinking about it the right way, where, hey, we're about to have an e-commerce initiative, where we could calculate every second of downtime 
to this not being live. And they treated it differently. And they they treated it as a project and lived in a different uh, environment outside of their on-premise data center. And um, that is that is the mentality that, that people really need to have when they look at the the business or even supporting, you know, uh, secondary sites, disaster recovery. Not all applications have to have disaster recovery. If something could be down for 30 days and not impact materially the business, why would you spend significant capital or expense to do something to protect that uh, in any meaningful way, right? Versus, hey, I've got an application. If it's down, if it's not working because the data center platform is not available, um, we're losing money in creating risk for the business. That's a different conversation. And um, it's important. Most businesses need help with that and uh, don't fully uh, understand that. And it changes on a on a regular basis and, and something that can be difficult for organizations to keep up with and, and something that, uh, you know, I've, I've been very happy to, uh, to be a part of consulting on. So related to that, what are maybe one or two of the questions that, that we ask people that you think really are eye-opening to the different clients that we work with that they, that they probably wouldn't have thought to ask? You know, it's, it's really, I, I look at it as, I can't, I can't come up with necessarily one or two specific questions per se. I, I think of it more as a, I'm taking them on a walk, and we're about to go down a path together. And the first question that starts the walk is, if this room was 100% wiped out, just incinerated, what happens to the business? And a lot of times people haven't actually bent the brain power to do a full walk down on that and think through that fully, which, uh, you know, that's kind of therapeutic to really make somebody walk that path and then start to think, okay, that's the worst case scenario. What about if you, know, you had a major issue and you, you couldn't get in and you couldn't you couldn't use the building for a week? What then what would happen? Right? And then just start narrowing that down to scenarios that become more and more day to day, more and more realistic. Okay, so you have had downtime. What did that do to the business? Right? Uh, when was that? When if it would have been a different time of the day? You know, is Monday morning at nine o'clock more painful to the business than Saturday evening? Depends on the business, right? You know, so that's that's the type of walk where it's it's you know sometimes um, I think people and I did it when I first got into business. You make assumptions that well, big companies they 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 know all this, they've got all this buttoned up, and you know now you know it's it's of course no surprise for me that I can go into almost any business, any organization, anywhere in the world, and know that they don't have a full handle on this. Because it's very, very difficult organizationally to get your hands around this, especially as, the, especially actually as the business gets bigger. Um, as those of us that have worked with large multinationals know, really you're dealing with, you know, one brand that might have an umbrella of dozens or hundreds of uh, of different pieces to it uh, through M and A and just different business lines, um, and it can become a, a big umbrella that has so many moving parts that that's that's a, uh, a complex conversation to have. But and one of the other on the key pieces is really what we did. One of the other key pieces there is understanding you know how long is the person who's in the role that they're in been in that role and have they even had time to wrap their hands around the situation 
And as the developers who may be listening know very well how key and important documentation is if they're stepping into a new environment and looking at code. If there's almost no documentation, they're kind of <laughs> they're starting from scratch and they have to kind of relearn how how things tie together and why someone did what they did. And more often than not, Todd, as I know you can attest, we walk in organizations and someone's maybe a year into a role or three years into a role to find someone who's in a even a CIO, CTO, or director of IT position who's been at that company for more than four or five years is, you know, that's a rare, rare, rare occurrence. And as such, you know, you can't assume that 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 person in that role has a full handle on what the heck is going on and, and has documentation to support it all, which is actually, you know, ironically enough, man, this is kind of a segue to some of the stuff that we've done recently that we have found very valuable in terms of not really our process, but the documentation of our process. So, you know, real quick, if you could kind of walk through the conversation around why why we productized the ROI 360 engagement process on our end. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's important for people to understand, you know, what a process looks like and and you know what really is brought to that. And and frankly, the secret sauce to that process though is uh, relatively rare know-how, right? I mean, we're, we've been talking this whole time about a business that has become secondhand to us, but it's, I mean, it's a relatively new industry and business. And, and you think about it in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, uh, we, we talked earlier on this call that 10 years ago, I mean, people were saying it, it wouldn't even work if you had it offsite uh, in many cases. And now, um, of course, it's it's become a, a commonplace uh, business. So the, the process to me, um, when in the hands of uh, people that have been through this, from all sorts of various different uh, experiences and sizes and, and different types of environments, the, the the process itself, you know, with 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 360 is is very um, it, it's it's very similar every time. There's a discipline to that, and I think it's important for people to understand how that's documented and how that's delivered. But I mean, you know, frankly, it's 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 still only as good as the um, uh, as the assessor is able to wield it, <laughs> right? Which I think is important not to underestimate. Yeah, that goes that goes back to you know during the trainings, we almost every single time have people walk out and say, "Well, can't you just give us you know the ten questions that we need to ask our customers so that we can just do this ourselves, right?" And you know, I think we both have the same sentiment sentiment and response, which is, "Well, we'll no, <laughs> you know, we can give you a couple questions to ask that will help guide the conversation." But if you don't know why you're asking the questions and where to go down the tree, you know, the the logic tree of the responses that they're going to give and how to follow that up, then you're not going to come across looking like you actually know what the heck you're talking about, which is the whole point of why we do what we do, right? We want, we want to get people and arm people enough so that they can feel confident having a conversation and understanding where the need is. But until you have the experience under your belt and you've seen the scenarios, you're simply not going to be able to deliver the type of consulting and expertise, knowledge, process, value that someone, you know, we're, we're not the only firm, obviously, that does what we do. There, there's a, a variety, a handful of others, but they're limited at the end of the day. Um, one of the other conversations I'd love to get your your feedback, you know, recorded on is has to do with uh, when people say, well, Cyrus One is down the road, right? So there, I know a data center provider, I've got a great relationship with the 
sales executive over at Cyrus One. Um, and Cyrus One could be any data center owner operator, but you know, why, why can't I just throw stuff over the fence to them and have them solve the problem for, for my client? It's really making sure that that client understands exactly where they sit before they engage with any provider. And what we've been talking about is the overwhelming majority of, of organizations of any type in any vertical don't fully understand their own environments and as they would translate to a multi-tenant co-location solution, a wholesale solution, or, or a hosted managed solution, or, or a hybrid solution. They don't fully understand their own requirements. And I can't tell you how many times somebody walks in very confidently with a very, very poorly scoped requirement. Um, the providers uh, can help, and, and in many cases, they try to help to some extent in properly scoping deals. But, you know, that's number, number one. A lot of the salespeople aren't either incentivized or equipped to do a great job with that. And uh, once those contracts are signed and done, those clients are in them. And sometimes they're signing five, seven-year deals. They're never getting out of those um, during those terms in most cases. Uh, so, you know, getting it right up front is very important. And, and simply going to a provider that somebody has a relationship, and you're, you're talking about di- different people that are um, third-party agents. Typically, there's a, there's a lot of telecommunication experts that outnumber us that are that are in this space. Um, and we do see that a lot where, you know, let's just go engage and send some leads over to the data centers we know and let them handle it. That, in most cases, isn't going to be ideal for the customer. So if, if you're interested in making sure that the customer is getting the very best that it can get, um, the most ideal solution, the most economical alignment with their needs, uh, they've got to have a full grasp of what they are. And then understanding, you know, what is, what is the landscape? What is the environment? That provider down the road, they have a relationship, could, could indeed be the perfect fit, and it may not be, right? Uh, you know, so understanding what that landscape looks like, I mean, that's, that's our value proposition, of course, is what we do every day. So we have that intelligence to go with the experiences that we've had and understanding how to align and apply these processes. And um, that's why I'm excited every day I wake up and do what I do is I, I know the impact that uh, that knowledge and experience can have. And it's super exciting to work with business executives that appreciate that and um, um, really make people um, uh, more able to move their, their organizations into the future and uh, in many cases just get so much more for what they already had in their budget um, that can be impactful to the business in the future and an advantage to that business. Um, and that, that can't really be understated. I get very excited about that. I probably mentioned this a few times on the podcast, but one of the primary reasons why I started doing what, I, what, I, what we do now full-time for a living and started Open Spectrum way back when is because I noticed that there was a clear delineation between those who actually knew what the hell they were doing when they were buying these services and those who did not. And it wasn't simply, you know, an IT director who had been uh, an IT director for 10, 20, 30 years even. It was those who purchased this type of infrastructure on an ongoing regular basis. And let's face it, the reality is most companies only make these decisions once every five, 10 years, right? And yet there's companies like Facebook and Akamai and Yahoo at, at one time, uh, Google, 
Microsoft, IBM, who were procuring these services month over month around the world. And so they build out teams internally whose only job is to document in detail, not only the marketplace, but what their actual needs are so that they can maximize every dollar being spent on that infrastructure. And when that light bulb went off in my head when I was working at QTS back in the day, you know, me being the entrepreneur that I am, it just started dawning on me, there's an opportunity here to take that level of detailed acumen and understanding of the marketplace and what clients' actual needs are and marry them together for everyone who's not buying this infrastructure on a day-to-day basis, right? So that's, that's really what drives me, at least, you know, as you're saying, your, your passion when you wake up in the morning. My passion is really just shining a light of, of transparency and truth on not just the marketplace, but what clients' actual needs are. And when we can marry those two together, there's a lot of value that is created. But we, we don't need to keep, you know, really what we're all we're doing is talking about understanding the marketplace, understanding client needs, and how valuable that is. And, you know, if we can play a role in that process, fucking phenomenal. We want to be part of that process. You know, there's other firms that do it. We do. Of course, we're going to say that we do it, you know, probably better than most because we have more more hands-on experience doing it. But at the end of the day, that's that's what why we do what we do and, and what drives us. When we wake up in the morning, Todd, I got a couple other questions for you and then we can we can wrap this sucker up. But one of them is, what is something that you you see in the marketplace today and that you've learned over the years that you think uh, might be overlooked or misunderstood about about our industry? You know, I think a lot of people... A lot of people oversimplify things and they look at it and say, you know, it's all going to the cloud or, you know, uh, nobody's ever going to build data centers again. And, you know, just kind of sweeping statements, right? Um, you know, I saw an article, an article that uh, I posted uh, a couple days ago about, you know, there'll be no more hospital data centers in five years. So there'll be no more of this, you know, these kind of sweeping statements. And, you know, that's just from from my experience and you know the, the ongoing research that I do, it's just not how not how the world works, right? I mean, people underestimate the power of status quo. I mean, there is to me nothing more powerful, whether we're talking about uh, government or you know business, large organizations. Status quo has its own gravitational pull, and once it gets bigger and stronger, and the budgets are flowing and the money is flowing. It's so difficult to move and disrupt that. Um, and changing how things have always been done is often only, it only happens when people are forced to look at that. When I started talking about the Houston market back in, say, 2007, uh, 2008, before the, the, the big recession had happened with the problems in the banking industry, a lot of times those uh, energy companies, they didn't want to outsource their data centers. They didn't want, really, that wasn't their choice. They did it out of necessity. Price of oil had gone up dramatically, and they they needed more facilities, and they didn't have time to build them. And if it's already built, they're going to go with that. So it's it's things things don't happen though because. And, and one thing I'll say just to, to underscore this: things don't always happen because it's the right solution. Sometimes it happens because it, it it's the solution that works today. It makes sense today. Um, and it's not always just a light switch that goes, yep, it's all moving in that direction because, you know, that's uh, that's that's the way it should be, right? It, it, it's an incremental effect. Things reach a certain point and then a new status quo begins to be created. And the movement to that next thing 
it again takes time. A lot of people, you know, will say, okay, well, it's all going to the cloud. Well, I say, well, wait a minute. You know, you have companies that have made multi-million dollar, tens of millions of dollars of commitments to, say, co-location contracts, 10, 15 year commitments. You know, that's an, that's an economic status quo. People have their names on those. People built mega facilities several years ago. Those facilities still exist. And just getting rid of them is not uh, the easiest thing to do politically, or you know, sometimes it doesn't make economic sense. A, a mistake can create a status quo that persists for many, many years. That's why it's important, right, when you're, when you're talking about these platforms, to really understand status quo, to really get them to understand what that is. Because transformation out of status quo doesn't really occur until there's a no It has to be like that no-brainer. Like, why wouldn't we do this, right? That's when I start seeing shifts happen, when you either have to do something or the evidence is overwhelming that you should do something. Outside of that, status quo wins. People underestimate that. Yeah, that's a great uh, great comment. Um, I'm gearing up to do a training with a bunch of Cisco hardware uh, VAR sales executives, and it just dawns on me that that's a great question for them to lead with when they're talking to customers on determining, you know, a lot of these guys are afraid that their customers are going to be migrating all the, the workloads into a, a hosted environment somewhere and that they're not going to have a need for physical infrastructure anymore. But to your point that it dawns on me that that's just a great leading question. You know, where does this infrastructure sit today? What is the term on the contract, right? Because if they're in another five, 10 year term contract, for their data center, whether it's you know in the office or it's in a colocation facility, it's going to require them to continue to invest in the physical capital and not migrate it to a, a managed environment. Well, it's obviously a major it's a major economic liability that they'd have to look at, right? I mean, so it's it's you know, and from my experience, that investment, you know, people hate abandoning investments, even if they weren't the one that made the investment. People don't like abandoning investments, it doesn't look good, right? I mean, it's kind of you made your bed, you lie in it uh, type of conversation. Um, and it's, you know, it's difficult. Um, one thing I would also say is that most organizations greatly, greatly overestimate their internal bandwidth to focus on things. And they tend to wait too long to, to make decisions to try to change their status quo. And that's another reason status quo is so powerful is that unless the pain is excruciating, it's sometimes less painful than addressing the issue. And you'll, you'll remain in the pain uh, that that may be causing you until it reaches, you know, uh, major levels to, to cause you to actually do something about it. And um, that, that can be true in, in many, many situations, not just technology. Good advice. What, what is the image that's displayed on your your laptop or your desktop right now when you when you pop your screen up the backdrop <laughs> that's a funny one that's uh this particular screen is a uh landscape of telluride and uh, it's got uh got my kids in it uh on a ski trip a couple years ago so uh, uh enjoy the spring skiing right on so let's let's conclude you know if you could summarize because i want to wrap this up here in the next couple of minutes because i got we got some stuff we got to jump into. Um, but Todd Smith, having lived and grown up in Houston, what is the state of the data center marketplace in Houston today? So today, the Houston market 
is is full of good providers, strong providers. Um, it is not a destination market. It's really the size and the maturity it is because just of the sheer weight of use in itself and and arguably being the uh, energy capital of the world in many regards. Um, because oil and gas has really taken uh, taken a, a hard road in the past few years, you know, I think what we have right now in Houston is is a landscape of, of high quality capacity that's uh, got a lot of availability with with a lot of you know several very strong operators. So it's it's a buyer's market uh, for sure, and uh, a, a great opportunity that may not uh, uh, we may not see again. Um, uh, in terms of being able to secure high quality infrastructure from a facility standpoint um, at uh, at good market rates so who who are some of the the major players in the market there Cyrus one of course as we as we've discussed the the uh, Houston being its original headquarters market uh, which is now Dallas um, the uh, another regional provider by the name of data foundry has has come into Houston um, being based in Austin and a very strong retail provider. Uh, with with a very strong uh, culture, uh, digital reality has a major campus, uh, the north side of town that has uh, has some tenants that operate there as well. Fiber Town, Level Three, uh, both have facilities right there <coughs> on solid infrastructure. Edge Connects, which has uh, you made some waves out in the market. They they bought a um, a campus uh, in Katy, Texas, which is on the west side of the Greater Houston area. Uh, very good infrastructure, and uh, it's got a good presence there. Um, kind of reaching outside a little bit, but the great, greater, greater area, um, very interesting facility. Uh, the Westland Bunker is in Conroe, Texas. Very interesting story. I encourage people to look that up. Uh, it used to be a underground nuclear bunker uh, that was privately built um, by a Chinese national uh, decades ago, and um, very interesting. Um, the... The building, uh, 1301 Fannin in downtown Houston, uh, has uh, been bought by a relatively new provider. Uh, we know these investors uh, from Neutrality, and, um, and they're, they're an interesting entrant that owns uh, that asset, uh, a longstanding, uh, high-quality building and uh, strong data center presence uh, there in the downtown area. Uh, so that's, um, that's pretty much the, the, the landscape that we see right now, and a lot of good options, a lot of a lot of good new infrastructure that is available in this market. Well, Todd, the uh, the last question that I have for you, which I ask all my my guests, is: Do you love data centers? Well, you know I do. I love data centers, absolutely. All right, my friend. Any any closing remarks? No, uh, for anybody that's listening to this, um, you know, I, I hope you guys are happy in this industry. If you're if you're from this industry and um, you know, it's just exciting and, and uh, so much change. And I just say, you know, try to keep that enthusiasm. Uh, hope you feel the same way we do about it and uh, looking forward to the future and we'll see how it goes. Amen, brother. Thank you so much. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services 
space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. 